too. Uh, tonight we're in Hebrews chapter 9, and so I'll give you a second if you want to turn to your copy of God's Word in, in Hebrews 9. Uh, talking about um, Old Covenant ministry versus New Covenant ministry. Just kind of, I guess, one in, in a way a reminder, just remember that the entire book of Hebrews is a demonstration of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The preeminency. Uh, he is preeminent. He's first above all things. He's sovereign in all things. Um, and the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating this by going through and showing uh, way back in chapter 1 that Christ is, is greater than the angels. You know, to, to which the angels did God ever say, you know, set at my right hand or you are my son. And so, um, but to Christ he said those things. Chapter 2, um, and I don't know if I want to give a, a breakdown for every single chapter, but chapter 2 talks about the, um, the, the personhood of Jesus. Uh, not only is he God, but he's fully man. And it just demonstrates how um, the love of Christ, the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ, and there's no greater humility, no greater love, no greater sacrifice than that that the Lord Jesus uh, did for us, for you and me, that we might have salvation and forgiveness of sins. Um, we've just we've kind of got into the fact that Jesus is um, is our high priest, and he's after the order of Melchizedek, which which um, typically uh, as a prototype means that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only our priest and not only our king, but he is both our high priest and our king. Um, that he sits on the throne in heaven at the right hand of, of God the Father, which is a position of authority. We looked at the fact that he's seated at the right hand, which means victory has already been accomplished. And very similar to um, when Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he's seated on a, on a colt. Um, a world leader in those days who had been off at battle, uh, if they entered into the city... Uh, mounted on a steed, uh, then the battle was still raging. The war was being fought, and he was, he was coming home as a warrior. Uh, if he entered the city on a colt, it represented victory had been attained. Um, and so when Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem uh, at the triumphal entry, he's, he's declaring that victory has been won, or uh, in his case, is about to be won at Calvary's cross. Um, and then we looked at the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. I gave you, I think, 17 comparisons of the Old Testament, uh, not the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant of the Mosaic Covenant, the law, versus what we have in Christ Jesus and why the covenant with Jesus Christ is so much superior, uh, by far superior to the Old Covenant. And so that's where we were last week. And so I just want to keep bringing you back to the writer's um, clear intent of demonstrating that not only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over all, but the office of the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over all. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over all. And, and so just remember that uh, the right of Hebrews, which we've talked in the past about how um, eloquently the writer writes this book. And so there's uh, the Greek... Um, is very elegantly uh, written, eloquently. And so so just want to jump into 9 now as we look at kind of uh, ministry during the Old Covenant versus ministry in the New Covenant and talk a little bit maybe about um, 
the tabernacle or um, sanctuary of God, which to me is just a very interesting topic. And I mentioned some of it last week. And so maybe we'll get into a little bit of talking about the dwelling place of God, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, what that looks like today under the new covenant, what it looked like under Moses, um, and even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and creation, uh, this notion of the dwelling place of God. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Um, chapter 9, we'll look at kind of the, the first three verses, I think. And then we'll look at verses 4 through 7. And then 8 and 9. And then work our way through this chapter. Um, so the first 10 verses are dealing with Old Covenant ministry. And so it reads this, the first three verses. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle, tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lamp, where the lamp stand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold and on all sides, in which was uh, a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, um, and the ta tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Um, let me just read through ten. Uh, the cherubim of glory were above the ark, uh, overshadowing the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is where um, God would have sat, um, or that was, at, the Israelites viewed that as the the seat of God, the mercy seat, where God looked down. Remember that heaven, in his, heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool, and so the mercy seat was a picture of where God's presence would come and rest. Um, it, it is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now, the right Hebrew says in verse 5. Verse 6, with these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. And so just remember there's um, kind of a three, uh, almost, if the temple would have been circular, it would have been like concentric circles. Uh, but if you can think of a rectang rectangular design, uh, for instance, you may have walls around the exterior with one entrance, and then you have a building inside, and then within that building you have the most holy, the holy of holies. And so there's these three areas that we find not only in the old tabernacle, not only in the, the temple of Solomon uh, or the Herodian temple, second temple Judaism, uh, but even in the Garden of Eden, we see it structured in kind of this three uh, areas or geographic locations within the actual uh, garden where God dwelt with Adam and Eve and would come walk in the cool of the day. Uh, so what the writer Hebrews is doing here, I just want, want to take a second to make sure we don't get lost in some of the, the details of the writing, uh, is that there's this place where the ministers would come daily. But as we progress inwardly toward that most holy place or the holy of holies, it wasn't a place in the old covenant where the, where the priests or ministers would enter daily. Uh, in fact, they would enter, the, well, let's just, let's read the, uh, verse 6 again. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year, and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins the people have committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit um, 
was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Uh, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's com conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, various washings imposed until the time of the new order. So let's just take the, the first ten verses, I guess, and, and look at this idea of the temple structure and the ministry of the priesthood in the Old Covenant system, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in Israel. And so, uh, so this began really in the tabernacle. Remember that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's given the tablets. Um, and, and so they begin to uh, set up a temporary dwelling place for God called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you kind of had this exterior made of uh, almost like a wall-like structure made with uh, cloth and and, of course, some structure within there. Uh, and then you entered into this second room, uh, the, uh, the most holy place. Uh, and then you entered into what would be called the Holy of Holies. Now, Moses would enter into what's called the Tent of Meeting, where he would meet with God. And Joshua would go with Moses, but Joshua would stay outside while Moses went into uh, the Tent of Meeting. Uh, and so that's, that's interesting because Joshua is the one who replaces Moses as the leader where Aaron is the, the, the line from which the priesthood came from. And it wasn't Aaron that went into the tent of meeting. It was actually Moses. Uh, and following, uh, succeeding Moses was, was Joshua. And so the ministry there were kind of temporary ministries from the beginning. Uh, we talked last week about the temple and the tabernacle kind of being a shadow of the true temple, the true tabernacle of God. Uh, which is where God rules and reigns and has ruled and reigned from eternity past until the present, continues and will continue to, to serve and reign on high and is uh, in his throne room. And so even the tabernacle was a symbol of the reality of the spiritual world and the true tabernacle where God lived, where God uh, dwelt would be a better way, I think, to say that. And so you had several things set up, and these things represented. So you had, it, it talks about you had um, uh, the, the table where the loaves, the, the, the bread would have been. Um, you have the Ark of the Covenant where the manna, that which God would use to feed the Israelites while in the wilderness, was so some of the manna had been placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's staff, that in the Old Testament he has a staff, and, and like a flower blooms, like, it has a bloom that comes out to show that uh, Aaron, to, to solidify who Aaron is and what he's been called to be, and, and I guess even God's favor. And so Aaron's staff was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the tablets which the Ten Commandments had been written on or, or engraved upon uh, were in the Ark of the Covenant. And then we talked a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant and, and this picture of what it was. So you had the chair beam. Um, uh, that we're looking kind of over the center of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that when, when Adam and Eve are removed from Eden uh, because of their disobedience and their sin, that God placed cherubim to guard the entrance to Eden. In the same way, 
Um, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which has the law of God, which is what we've all broken, our sinfulness. And there we see again the cherubim uh, kind of as protectors uh, of the, the law of God, the place of God, the dwelling place of God. And so where the Ark of the Covenant was located, the high priest would only go in once a year. When he went in, he took, he had to do two offerings, first of all. He had to do an offering for himself because the high priest was not sinless. And so the high priest would have to go in and make a sacrifice for himself, would have to uh, make sure that he was um, spiritually clean and worthy to enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And after he made his uh, offering for his own sinfulness so that he and God might be in right relationship. Then he would make an offering um, of a perfect spotless lamb, the blood, for the people, for God's people. And this was the system which the people lived under in the Old Testament. Now remember that all through Hebrews, what we're really looking to see is how do the old and the new compare to one another? What are they and, and what ways are they alike? And what ways are there differences? And in, in the new covenant, um, how it is better, superior, supreme to what Israel lived under in the old covenant. So when Christ came, he brought with him a better covenant, a, a better agreement, a, a better declaration from God. Uh, another way we might look at it is the Old Testament was a system of temporary fixes. Um, you know, I, I'm not a great mechanic or handyman, for sure. And, and usually what I find myself doing is just trying to, to, to do some temporary fixes to things. So if we have a water leak, I'm going to try to find some way just to tighten something up or, or, or put some duct tape, which fixes everything, Right. Uh, just to try to stop the leak until somebody who knows what they're doing can come along and fix it permanently. And in the same way, the old system, the old covenant, um, was uh, man-centered in the sense God gave it to him, but then man were to respond. Man had to, um, to follow the covenant, the covenantal system, and, and then what they were offered or what they were supplied was temporary fixes. And, and so the high priest didn't go in once and the sins of the people were forgiven for always or for, for eternity. But it was a temporary fix, right? It, it got them through. Uh, it was God's way of pointing to a permanent solution. And um, so, so, yeah, I hope you can imagine that. And so we're, we're talking about in the old covenant a temporary solution to the problem of man's sinfulness. In the new covenant, covenant and the new testament in the lord jesus christ we're talking about the permanent fix of man's sinfulness in relation to god and, and so the writer here is just saying that when we look at the old tabernacle system we look at it and by the way the uh, the tabernacle came first and then the temple reflected the tabernacle right um was built kind of with similar regulations and layouts and uh, the same orders that was given to the priesthood would have um, would have continued throughout the temple system until Christ comes along. When Christ comes along, things change. And so that's where we get to in verse 11 is, uh, all right, the first 10 verses, this is how the priest ministered to God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, they made sacrifice in the very holy uh, place, in the most holy place. 
for the sins of the people once a year, for those sins of ignorance committed, not, not intentionally, but just because we're flesh and blood and we make mistakes and we're not God, so we're not perfect. But now we, we move to this new covenant, this, this new agreement God makes with man through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and so uh, the comparison here is the difference between the, the priestly ministry in the Old Testament and the New. So verse 11 says, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in, greater, in, the, more, or in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not, that, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Um, so, so, so far, um, what the writer's saying, I just want to keep this on track, is... If the blood of animals could be used as a temporary fix um, for man's sinfulness in relation to God in the Old Testament, then how much more is the blood of Christ, who is the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the Word made flesh, God dwelling among us, if His blood is sacrificed for the sin of the world, then how much greater is it in covering our sinfulness than that of animals? Uh, to cleanse our conscience from dead work so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, as a result, right? So therefore, since Jesus allowed himself to be sacrificed, to be our offering for our sins, verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant essentially um, dwells around him revolves around him. He, he is the one who mediates because he is the one who made intercession for us. He is the one who went into the very uh, holy place. He's the one that not went in there to make a... He didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He was already sinless. And so the sacrifice he made was himself. And so it was a perfect sinless sacrifice leading to a permanent fix for our sin in relation to our... Um, relationship with God. And since he did this, now he's the one who mediates that covenant. And so we come to God through Christ. Why? Because he's the mediator of the new covenant. I, I don't go to God in myself. I don't go before the Father or uh, the, the very throne of God in myself or in my own goodness or in my own righteousness. I go before the throne of God through Christ. He is the mediator. He mediates this new ministry. This is the new ministry the new, of the New Testament is that Christ is mediating between man and God. Before, man went through the high priest to God. Uh, and it was only a temporary fix. Now we go through Christ, who is our new high priest, in order to be in right relationship with God. Um, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of one who made it must be established. 
we're, we're talking about, we're, we're really, the Hebrew writer is going to lead into like the death of Christ, right? This is the sacrifice. And he begins by, by making this statement. If someone has a will and they die, then that will is executed. So the, uh, the purpose and the plan um, that someone has put into, um, whether it be the inheritance of others, that, that will come as a result of their death, it's carried out. And so we're going to look, uh, the, the right of Hebrews is going to bring us in and say, if this is the way we handle um, inheritances uh, in the, the natural men, in, in the flesh, then this is what the, the will of God was. And, and, and so we'll, we'll, let's just continue. Verse 17 says, uh, For a will is invalid, only when uh, a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. It sounds a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ in the Last Supper who takes the cup and, and declares, uh, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? This is my blood, which is shed for you. And, and so Jesus is establishing the new covenant in the same way or in a sense of the same way that Moses uh, established that relationship between God and man in the old covenant with the sprinkling of blood. And so Christ takes the cup and says, this is my blood. This, this is a representation of my literal blood that's going to be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and so very similar um, to what Moses did and what Moses said in instituting the, the old covenant. Um, verse 21 says, in the same way he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament that every time God makes a covenant with someone, there's always this offering or the sacrifice where um, blood of an innocent um, animal was presented before God um, to show that this agreement had been entered. In fact, in many cases, even in the Old Testament and in the culture of that time, when two people entered into an agreement, there had to be the shedding of blood that kind of sealed the agreement. And so, uh, in the same way, what the writer of Hebrews is getting to is that Christ in making the covenant with God between man and God, our relationship because of our sin, that this new agreement had to be sealed with blood. This is why uh, Christ allowed his blood to be shed for us so that the new covenant agreement will uh, of God uh, would be sealed. And if the blood of animals were sufficient in the Old Testament to seal the Old Covenant and the law that was given to Moses, then how much greater is the covenant we have with God 
that's been sealed by, by the blood of his only begotten son, by Jesus. And that, that's something to think about. This, I, I just think the writer of Hebrews throughout in an eloquent, in a really eloquent way, in a logical way, walks us through and ask us questions that makes us ponder, I think, boy, look at the Old Testament and all that God did for His people so they could be in relationship with Him. Now look at the new covenant God's established through Christ for us. And how much greater is this new testament, this new covenant, this new agreement with God because it's been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what the right of Hebrews essentially is saying to us. Uh, verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. All right, let's, let's hit this uh, real quick. We've been talking about, in last, I think the last study, we, we looked at the, the temple, and uh, what we talked about was the garden, the tabernacle, the temples uh, were all built as a um, shadow of the real sanctuary of God. And all the things that were placed within the tabernacle, all the things that were placed within the temple, uh, were reflections and shadows of what can be found in the true tabernacle of God in the heavens. And so, in order for even those things that were just shadows or copies or um, replicas or images that um, were just representations of the real things in the heavenly tabernacle, if they had to be sanctified uh, by the blood of animals to seal their sanctity, to purify them to be able to reside in the in the the tabernacle and the temple later, then how much greater is those, are, are those things which have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus? Yeah, and I, I think the word speaks pretty well for itself there. I think the question that the writer is asking is a profound question. Uh, and that hopefully we've pondered these things, we've thought on these things, looking back at the old system versus the new system, the law of Moses versus the grace uh, we find in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And uh, boy, um, not only is, is the book of Hebrews written very eloquently and logically, but I think the questions that we have to ask ourselves are profound and literally can be life-changing. Um, how, how do we view the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has made for us? H how do we reflect on these things? Have we ever really considered um, that God loved man so much that He created a means in the Old Testament for Him to be in relationship with His people? And yet that was only a temporary fix. The permanent fix would... Um, reach its climax at Calvary where Jesus Christ would shed his blood so that for the purification of mankind so that we might 
have the ability to enter into the presence of God, but only through the blood of Jesus which sanctifies us. Uh, verse 24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I, now I just I want to take a minute and just kind of, I think, reflect on, on what chapter 9 talks about, share some, uh, some of my thoughts. Uh, and as I've studied and, and uh, read through the book of Hebrews, uh, I think maybe some highlights, and some of it's going to be kind of just reiterating, I think, uh, some of the, the most important concepts that we've already covered in Hebrews. Essentially, um, the, the writer of Hebrews could have made one statement, and the statement could have simply been this. Um, the blood of Christ is far superior than the blood of animals. And it is more sufficient and effective for the purification and the forgiveness of sins of mankind than the blood of animals. And so since the high priest had to enter yearly to make these sacrifices repeatedly for the sins of man, but because of the superiority of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't just enter into a shadow or a, a temple made by man or a tabernacle set up by man, but literally entered heaven itself into the very throne room of God on our behalf, then how much greater is the salvation that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ than the hope of that which would be placed in the blood of animals? And the answer is um, infinitely greater. And so the blood which has been shed for our forgiveness is infinitely greater than any blood that's ever been shed uh, by any other animal or any other man throughout humankind uh, and the history of mankind. And so the sacrifice of Christ was not made in a temple made with hands, but was made and presented in heaven itself, where he still sits and reigns in authority at the right hand of the Father and mediates for us as our high priest. And so if God's people in the Old Testament place their faith, and remember that even in the Old Testament, they're saved by faith. Saved in, in faith that if they do what God has commanded them to do, do the will of God, uh, and to put their trust in the forgiveness of their sins and God's means of forgiveness, which was the sacrifice of a spotless lamb, 
then as New Testament believers and those who are living in a different uh, relationship with God, because not because we're better men and women than God's people, the Old Testament, we're not any better than they were. Our sacrifice was better. It's um, the, the difference between the New and the Old Testament is not people. It's not the expectations of God. They're the same. The only difference between the Old Testament system is that the Old Testament was a shadow of that which was to come in reality in the form of Jesus Christ. And so every animal that was ever sacrificed in the Old Testament through that entire period, even from the first animal that we could argue that God sacrificed in the garden to clothe Adam and Eve after their sinfulness and they were found naked. Every blood sacrifice made to God through the priesthood for the forgiveness and sins of men, all were necessary, all were important because they pointed us to the ultimate sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even while in the Old Testament they were putting their faith and trust, not only in one lamb or, or uh, per year, not just in the animal itself, they were actually putting their faith and trust in the sacrifice that was promised to come in the future, the Messiah that would come. And so even the, um, even the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament our faith was still in Christ. And so I know a lot of people ask many times uh, that they're, they're concerned about this question of the Old Testament people kind of putting their faith and trust uh, in the blood sacrifices of, of animals. Uh, but I think that's a misunderstanding of where their faith and their trust really was. Their faith and their trust wasn't necessarily in that particular animal. Their faith and trust was in what that animal represented. And what that animal represented was a future king and priest who would come and sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. Uh, we read in Isaiah about uh, like a lamb being led to the slaughter without uttering a word as a picture of what they were expecting to come. And that's exactly what, what they got. That's exactly what Christ did. And so I hope that we would not confuse the Old Testament system as a sense of um, something barbaric in the sense, or even occultic in the sense of uh, that, that if they just sacrificed a lamb, it would, be, it would forgive their sins. It was more than that. It, it was putting their faith and trust in the lamb that was to come. And so every animal sacrifice, every innocent sacrifice pointed to the ultimate sacrifice and so as we read the old testament every time we see an offering offered up to god every time we see a sacrifice made and offered to god it's pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice that jesus christ will make on not only our behalf but on behalf of all those who've come before us and all those who will come after us and so it's it's not barbaric or occultic in that sense. It's actually a beautiful 
portrayal of what the people of Israel were looking for. They were looking for this promised Messiah. And it's easy for us now to look back and to see how Christ fulfilled all, all those things, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he was the perfect sacrifice that all the animals before were just simply a shadow of, a, a temporary solution that needed Christ to come so the solution be permanent. I think when we see that, it changes our perspective about um, the salvation and the righteousness of men and the forgiveness of men found in the Old Testament through uh, the animal sacrifices. Uh, it was more than just sacrificing an animal, I guess. And, and I know that I, maybe I've kind of got off on, on this and, and uh, am going on a tangent about it, but I, I think it's just too important to, to not address. I've met lots of people with lots of questions about the Old Testament, and, and they see kind of the the idea of animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins is something um, today that might only be practiced in the occult uh, around the world. And, and if that's what you see, you've missed the whole point. And, and I think this, it shows us how Israel missed the point. Um, that, that all they were doing throughout the entire Old Testament symbolized the one true sacrifice, Christ. And when Christ came, the sacrifice he would make would be permanent. Uh, and the temple that his blood and sacrifice would be um, made in and for and through would be the real temple, the real tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, the eternal dwelling place of God where the animal sacrifices were made in just a human representation of the true tabernacle and the true sanctuary. And so understand that the true dwelling place of God was not made by the hands of man. And the temple was so important, and, and rightly so, because it represented the very real heavenly dwelling place of God. And it represented the dwelling place of God and where he would communicate with men on behalf of the people. He would come and sit on the mercy seat. And um, there, There's this beautiful picture if you think of the Ark of the Covenant. And the cherubim looking over. Um, and God looking down. And the Ten Commandments are inside the Ark of the Covenant. So essentially it's like God looking down and seeing the law. And the reason that blood would be spread upon the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the top there on the place of the offering, was it covered the law. And so as God looked down upon the, the law contained in the, in the Ark, He saw the law and we were all condemned by the law. That's what it means to say uh, there was condemnation in the law is that because none of us can keep it perfectly, or no one ever kept it perfectly except for Christ, when God looked down upon the law, then um, judgment needed to be made for the sins of the people, the laws that had been broken. And, and so what the ark represented was, um, as God looked down upon the Ten Commandments and the law, uh, as the blood was spread over it, 
God no longer saw the law, but He saw the punishment and the price for those forgiveness. Or for the forgiveness of the people. And that's a beautiful picture. I think that illustrates to us uh, what happens in this relationship with Christ. Because now, because the blood of Jesus covers us, and remember that, let, let's not forget if we're talking about the tabernacle and, and the temple and the dwelling place of God, that now in the new covenant, the dwelling place of God is with man. And, and so rightfully, we are, you know, we consider our bodies to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, because we have the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, the picture of, okay, God dwelling and residing within us, now the temple, and the blood of Jesus covering us, so that when God looks upon us, He doesn't see our guilt. It doesn't mean that we're not guilty, but what He sees is the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. And it's why we can stand before God one day in eternity, with confidence, not in ourself, but in Christ. That when we stand before the judgment seat, that when God looks at us, He will not see my failings. He won't see my, my shortcomings. But rather when He looks at me, if I've been covered by the blood of Jesus, what He sees is innocence. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was innocent, perfect, spotless, without blemish, right? And so when God looks at me, if I'm truly covered by the blood of Christ, the imagery there, the picture of that, right? Um, is a picture of, uh, of what the Old Testament reflected. And so God would look down upon the law and see the guilt of man. The high priest would take the sacrifice in yearly so that then when God looked down, he saw the innocent blood of a lamb. And in that, judgment had been made. And so Christ was judged once and for all on the cross, receiving all the wrath of God for all the sins of those who are called by God, so that one day we can stand before God with confidence in Jesus Christ, that if we're covered by His blood, we are eternally saved. I pray that would leave an impression, this indelible image in our mind. It's not a picture literally of us standing before God one day with blood really covering us. It is a picture of the old covenant sacrifice. And the blood of the Lamb covering the Ark of the Covenant. And God seeing the innocent blood of the Lamb. That's the picture of us as the believer. Being covered by the blood of Jesus. Um, so that when God looks at us, He sees our, the innocence of Christ and not the guilt of man. And that's something that we should never get over. That's something that should um, permeate our thoughts. And um, when we're having difficult times and hard days and going through um, difficult circumstances in our life, um, to, to look up 
and to realize um, that our high priest was also our sacrifice. Uh, that the one who was perfect was judged as sinful for the benefit of man. And the literal blood of Jesus needed to be shed to cover the sinfulness of all those who God had called to be called children of God. And so I pray that that uh, leaves you encouraged tonight. Uh, boy, there's a difference between the Old and the New Testament. There's no doubt. But the law in the Old Testament still has its purpose. Because to truly know Christ and understand Christ, we have to understand the Old the old covenant and the Old Testament, the law, because Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of that. So if we really want to get a true picture of Christ, we have to know what it is the law did and what's the law for and what does the law accomplish. And here's what the law accomplishes. It points us all to a Savior because we all fall short of God's standards. And so God's moral um, will and moral law still stands. Like God still expects his people to live uh, in a manner that's pleasing to him, that brings glory to him, and is a testimony to others about him. That hasn't changed. We don't have the ceremonial law anymore. We don't have to go sacrifice innocent lambs to cover our sins because the one perfect spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, shed his blood for our sins. So the ceremonial law of purifications and things like that and sacrifices are no longer what Jesus, what Jesus did was truly to fulfill all of that, to, to, to bring it to an end because it had been satisfied. And so the, that ceremonial law has already been completed and fulfilled in the blood of Jesus. And if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, then we're counted as righteousness when it comes to the ceremonial law of God. We still have to honor our father and mother. We still have to love our neighbors. Right? Jesus' great commandment was, was not, oh, just live how you want to and Ask me into your heart. It was no. You have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Because in these two commandments, all the law is contained. And so we're still under obligation by God to live under the, the, the authority of God. Um, we no longer have the civil law of the Old Testament. Because we're not a theocracy. We, we all live and reside in different countries and have different civil laws and so now if my neighbor and I have a dispute there is a legal recourse for me to take within the civil law of our land in the Old Testament the civil law was the, the law of God and it was a theocracy and so um, when we see their civil law uh, how do you handle disputes how do you handle land disputes or um, uh, you know how do you handle someone steals from you uh, we have civil laws for that, and we are to abide by those laws, the laws of, of our nation. But the, the moral law of God still stands for the believer today. Uh, what's changed is not what God expects. What's, what's changed is the means by which we're forgiven for our shortcomings. 
Um, and so in the Old Testament, spotless lambs were sacrificed each year. And in the New Testament, Christ sacrificed himself once and for all. I pray you have a great rest of your week. Uh, if you have any questions, I don't have my iPad or my phone uh, with me right now, so I can't see any comments. So I'm praying that you could hear this tonight. Uh, and I, I'm praying that the volume's on and that, um, that everything is, is running the way it should because I don't have um, a live device that, uh, that I'm watching it on as well. Uh, but I just encourage you, if you have a question, a comment, please leave it. Uh, direct message me if it's something that, that you want to keep between you and myself. Uh, if there's someone who's struggling with their faith or the New and the Old Testament and what are the differences, and uh, listen, God's the same today as He was in the Old Testament. Uh, his, his expectations for His children have not changed. The only thing that's changed is we have a permanent, permanent sacrifice. Once and for all, Christ died for our sins. And uh, so share it with someone, you know, if you feel like it'll benefit them. Uh, again, have a great week. Uh, we, will, uh, we will pick up with Hebrews 10, uh, most likely Sunday night. And, uh, and so I look forward to, uh, to taking part in that study with you. God bless. Again, have a great rest of your week.